But take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 5. We're in verse 12. You remember that we've just finished the story of Ananias and Sapphira who came forward um, pretending to make an offering that really wasn't exactly uh, accurate. And the Lord struck them dead because of their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a dangerous thing, especially when revival breaks out and God is exercising his power in demonstrative ways. Uh, watch out for uh, seeking to fake it. It doesn't go, very, go over very well with Christ. Uh, and we saw that with Ananias and Sapphira. And the fear of God fell upon all the people around, including the church, uh, through that act of judgment within the church. That's a pretty quick case of what we call church discipline. Uh, these folks got zapped. Well, let's look at verse 12, and then we're going to see what happens after this. Now, you, you know from chapters 3 and 4, there's already been one wave of persecution from the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And then uh, the Ananias and Sapphira incident. Now we're going to see a second wave of persecution. This is all happening in Jerusalem. Right at the first outbreak of the gospel, we see immediate resistance to the gospel. And uh, it's the same resistance you're experiencing. We've been doing this for thousands of years. So you shouldn't be surprised when persecutions or difficulties or afflictions or scorn comes upon you. This is the legacy of the gospel. It's always been this way. We're going to see now a second wave of it. And we're going to see something very significant in terms of the reaction of the disciples to the persecution they're facing. It's absolutely extraordinary. And we need to learn from it ourselves. Well, let's pick up with verse 12. And we'll probably take this a section at a time. And what we want to look at today is the gospel ministry and its power. And it has the power to bless a lot of people. And it has the power to make a lot of people angry. And then it has the power to lift you up in the midst of your carrying out the gospel ministry. That's what we're going to see today. And everybody who's been called to Christ, or if you're considering following Christ today, let me say to you, if you come to Him, He's going to put you to work. So be duly warned. If you come to Him, He's going to engage you in his father's business in the ministry of the gospel. And so it'd be nice for you to look at this and get a fair warning as to what comes uh, to men who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they take his gospel to their surroundings and around the world and they face certain opposition, but then they also experience God's incredible power uh, over uh, the uh, opposition. Well, let's look at verse 12, uh, chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Wow. First thing we want to see in these verses is that the gospel ministry enriches the needy. The gospel ministry enriches the needy. Who's the gospel for? Needy people, people who know that they're lost, people who know they need to be forgiven. Who's the gospel for? The people who are marginalized. It's for poor people. 
is for people who need to hear about a kingdom with a new and gracious king who lifts up the downcast and puts down the arrogant. They need to hear about that, and they need to experience it. And that's exactly what's going on with the gospel ministry. Notice from the very beginning that the number one audience was the downcast. Peter didn't immediately say, now let's get a strategy here uh, for Jerusalem. What we need, let's see, what do I remember from my political background? Oh, yeah, we need the trickle-down theory. So let's go to those who are influencers, and it makes sense, doesn't it? If we'll get the, the head of this business and the head of that institution and the head of that political party, and we get them all converted, then everybody else is going to be, be converted too. That's a, that makes sense, I'm sure, from a business point of view or, or a, 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 a political point of view. But it may even make sense from a military point of view. You know, cut off the heads of the primary leaders and then you'll get the Mohammed, you know, Gaddafi, get Gaddafi and you'll, you'll have Libya under control. Well, maybe, maybe it makes sense from a military point of view, but from a spiritual point of view, it doesn't make sense. And you have to reverse your instincts when you're looking at the gospel ministry. Where does the gospel ministry go? It begins with the lowest people, the people who are in the greatest physical need as well as spiritual need. That's where it goes. That's where Peter goes. It's just natural. So, I mean, he doesn't even have to strategize. It just happens. Why? Because those whose pride is not building walls of defensiveness are the very ones who hear the message gladly initially. Now, it's not, this is not as though God doesn't save rich people. He does. There's some hope for you, you know. But, but he, the gospel immediately goes to the poor. And this world is full of poor people. And this city is full of poor people. There are great opportunities for the gospel if we're willing to go where the gospel initially makes its biggest impact. Look, first of all, in verse 12, God exercises great power on their behalf, on behalf of the needy. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hand of the apostles. That doesn't mean just laying hands on them. That means through their labors. And if you look at Jesus' ministry, what, what did it consist of? We see that he looked upon the crowds and he had bowels of compassion for them, literally, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. He had bowels of compassion for them. And what did he do? He healed their diseases. He cast out their demons. He preached to them and he taught them. He taught the poor and the illiterate. But he healed them and he dealt with their spiritual diseases and the things that they were used to dealing with. And in our case, it would be dealing with the crime and the drugs and the, the broken families and all the spiritual dynamics of being the outcast. That's where Jesus went, and that's where Peter is going, and that's where God's power is being exercised. And so for this reason, <clears throat> when we come to Jesus Christ and we want to take up his ministry, well, let me just tell you, that's going to take you some places you're not used to going. I mean, just don't bother unless you're ready to do that. So all of us need to have our hands on the plow. All of us need to be committed to all the people in the city of Memphis. And we're going to go where the gospel is being heard and believed. And we're going to continue to work with our uppity friends. We're going to continue to witness to them as God gives us opportunity. But the statistics show today in America, in Memphis that the more education a person has and the more income that he has, the less likely he is to give a hearing to the gospel. I'm sorry. You would think that such benefits of being enlightened 
and be able to think clearly and to be trained how to think, one would be obviously open to the truth. But the opposite seems to be the case, and it has to do with intellectual pride. All kinds of pride keep us from being open to the gospel. What kept you from being open to the gospel? Or what's keeping you from being open to the gospel? It's your pride. In one way or another, you don't want to admit that you need the help of the deity in order to survive or in order to get into heaven. You don't want to admit you can't do it on your own. So intellectual pride and public social pride, by sometimes infused by dollars, keep us from being open. So when our friends close the door, we'll go where the door is open. And you'll find the door open largely with those who are the outcasts in society. And sometimes we just want to get other people to go do that. But Peter didn't. Peter went himself and the apostles. God exercises great power on their behalf. And some of you who work regularly with the poor and the outcast, you can tell us about his power. Now, notice that God's power, secondly, repels some. It says, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them, that is the apostles, in high esteem. So the gospel ministry repels some people. You ever notice that? <laughs> okay, you know, I, it's a good thing for you, Sandy, they told me uh, when, when I was in business and I'd just become a Christian. That's a good thing for you. You know, I'm glad you like religion. Uh, I'm, I'm into other stuff. Once again, just the pride. And to say, oh, well, we know, Wilson, you need it. Of course, they had no idea how desperately I needed it. But you need it, but I don't need it. And actually, the gospel is offensive to them. And when you bring it up, Oftentimes, you just find, you know, these people are really quick at changing the topic. It's amazing how fast topics can be switched in a conversation as soon as you bring up the J word. <laughs> you ever notice that? <laughs> why? Well, we're going to see why. Because the gospel has a cutting edge to it. It attacks your pride. It goes after it, full bore. And so uh, it's going to create a natural reaction in the natural man. I mean, honestly, don't you find it sometimes that when, when your soul is a little dry, your heart's a little hard, somebody almost has to break your knees to get you down to pray. It's amazing how even in, in the condition of being a Christian for, for a good while, you know, I find my heart dry and hard and my pride beginning to control my thoughts and my deeds and my words. And God really has to intervene on me strongly. Well, it's, it's a natural thing to repel the gospel. And I find Christian men going about Christian work will repel the gospel. They want to do Christian work in some other way than being needy and trusting in the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in their ministries. They want to do Christ's ministry in the world's way. It's amazing. We're always finding our flesh repelling the gospel. So it was here. We shouldn't be surprised. Now look thirdly, verses 14 through 16. God's power attracts many. And gentlemen, what you have to deal with, if you're going to be a, a Christian and, and be fairly happy about it, is that you're just not going to reach everybody. Come on. It's, you're, you're dealing with a fallen world that is evil. And our flesh is evil. And our flesh... In our flesh, there is no good thing. And that means our flesh hates God. 
We cover it up with a lot of niceties. We don't want that to be known publicly. But in our flesh, that's naturally how we feel about things. Now, so don't expect to have 100% following. I mean, even during the, the great revivals, the great awakening, for example, I mean, lives were dramatically changed. But there were people who opposed it strongly, who thought this was a bunch of fruitcakes, nutcases, who were taking the culture off into captivity. Sound familiar? Don't expect to have 100% following. And in days of non-revival, like now, don't expect to have 50%. Here's what you'd expect. About 20%. That's good. Now, the other 80%, most of those are mildly indifferent. 5% of them are hostile. 10% if you're with the highly educated or the very wealthy. You get 10% hostility. The unfortunate thing is that we Christians remember the 10%. <laughs> Man, I don't want to do that again. Man, I made him angry. And that really sticks in our head, and so we become quite shy about it, and we forget the 20%. Do you realize that 15% of Memphis is waiting to be asked to church by someone that they know and like? And if they're asked, they'll go. 15% of the unchurched population. But we're afraid. Why? Because of the 10% we experienced. The rest of them in the middle, they're kind of indifferent to it. And here's what studies tell us. Those who are in the middle, who don't say much, they actually consider it a compliment that you asked. They actually take it as an act of kindness. They won't admit it to you. But when polled in ways where we can gather this data, that's what they're telling us. They actually consider it an act of kindness. Only the 10% think you're a jerk. And those are the ones you remember. Peter was quick to learn that he's not going to get 100% involvement. <laughs> but he went after the ones that God was preserving and holding and the ones whom God had elected, basically. You remember how God said to Paul when he was in Corinth, don't worry, nobody's going to harm you. I have many elect in this city. So there are people out here, and those are the ones we go get, and we're going to pay the price for it because we're not going to get 100% following. We're going to get some very strong words and some very strong opposition, just like the Apostle Peter did. So God's power, though, will attract many. And what you find is in this text uh, is that the church was growing. And it says they were all healed. All who came were healed. Wow. It's amazing. There were other sick people, but they didn't like the gospel, so they didn't come. They didn't get healed. Last week, you heard the story about Rocky Anthony. And Rocky had been gospel minister for a long time. And he told you how he finally found a newer depth of healing than he ever found before. Was it because the gospel changed? Was it because it never had been preached to him before? Was it because he never read in the Bible before? No, it's because he went and received it. <laughs> it's amazing. The power of God is available to you and to your friends. And if you receive it, you can be healed. And I think that's what Rocky was saying to us last week. Come be healed. Open your heart. Let God get in. Let Him go down to the very bottom of your being. Let Him deal with the dark recesses of your soul. Let Him bring light to the places you thought you'd never experience light, ever. Let Christ come in. Look at this. They were all healed. Why? Because God's power was being exercised in gospel ministry, and they were willing to humble themselves and receive help, and they got healed. And that's the same offer that's being made to us. God's power attracts many. And the many 
that who are attracted are the many who are healed. And the church, and, and look at this uh, in these verses, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Added not just to the church. Notice this, added to the Lord. So we come into Him. We are members of Him, not just the church. So when you come to Him and you're healed, you're added to the Lord. What a wonderful phrase. You can underline that one. And many, more than ever. Well, that's making quite a statement. Because if you, if you look back in chapter 2, you find that uh, in verse uh, 47, they were adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 41, so those who received His word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 4, you find that uh, the number of men came to about 5,000. So we're talking about 3,000, 5,000. Now we're told more than ever, thousands of people were coming to Christ. The book of Acts is about the power of God through healing, spiritual healing, even physical healing, bringing multitudes to the gospel. And remember, when this gospel starts out, we have 12 men minus one. We have 500 witnesses. We have 100 million people in the world's population, demographers tell us. That's called a very small percentage. And you're going to see in the book of Acts that it grows and grows and grows, and then beyond Acts, by the time we get to the year 100 A.D., we have 1 million followers of Jesus Christ, 1% of the population. And now you have 33% of the population professing to be followers of Christ, and probably half of them actually are. Huge. And what Luke is showing us is the power of God takes hardened hearts and broken lives and transforms them with people who are willing to proclaim the gospel, to be available for ministry, and people who are willing to have their lives shaped by Him. The gospel's powerful. The gospel ministry enriches the needy. Now, secondly, uh, let's look at verses 17 through 42. Let's read this section, and then we want to make some very important observations about this ministry. And this whole section is entitled, The Gospel Ministry Enrages the Self-Sufficient. It enriches the needy, but it enrages the self-sufficient and the proud and the powerful and the elite and the important. And as we've already seen, those with a little bit more education and those with a little bit more money, it tends to enrage them. Now, there's a reason. The gospel's a threat in more ways to powerful people and self-sufficient people. And we must realize this. So let's look at the text and see how this all happens. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And you know what it usually came to. It usually came to the 
prison guards being executed, as in the case of Acts chapter 12, you know, Jesus has this habit of busting prison doors open. It happens again in chapter 12, and the prison guards are executed as they normally were when you had escapees. So wondering what this would come to, verse 25. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. That is, look, these folks will be easy to recapture. Don't worry, don't kill the guards. We can get these prisoners back. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Okay, let's back up. The gospel ministry enrages the self-sufficient. This is verses 17 through 40. Now, in the first two verses, 17 and 18, uh, we see this. The reason they're enraged is because they are jealous. Filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now, why are they jealous? Well, it's really simple, isn't it? The Sadducees, two things about the Sadducees. Number one, they were theological liberals. The Sadducees did not believe in miracles. That makes this tough for them because they're happening all over the place and they don't believe in it. So they got to come up with some alternative explanation for these phenomena. And that's pretty difficult. So they don't believe in miracles, including especially the resurrection of the dead. So here are people who are gaining popular footing by teaching the resurrection. And Sadducees are absolutely opposed to that. The Sadducees don't believe the entire Bible. They believe the Torah, the, the five books of, the, of Moses only. They don't believe the prophets. In other words, they don't believe they're inspired. 
So they only have the five books of the Bible. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in the, in the resurrection. Now, th that's the first thing you want to know about Sadducees. They're typical theological liberals. They don't believe in the su supernatural power of God. Second thing about the Sadducees is they were in charge. <laughs> they were the ruling elite. They were... They, were on, they, were, they made up the majority of the Sanhedrin. Now, Gamaliel, you notice, is a Pharisee. So there were some Pharisees there and some scribes. The Pharisees were another political party. They were the conservatives in the political party. So you could have the Pharisees were Republican Party. Sadducees were Democratic Party. <laughs> if I, that's, um, excuse me, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, <laughs> but generally, that's the way it works. So the Pharisees were very conservative. The Sadducees were very liberal. The Sadducees were in power. Now, the reason they were jealous was that there was tremendous popularity being rendered now to Peter and the other apostles. And as they said, Jerusalem is full of this rubbish now. They're following after you. And the Sadducees <clears throat> were in power. And, of course, if you were in power, that means several things. Uh, two things in particular. You had some political skill in dealing with the Romans, number one. You knew how to play the game. You knew, you knew how to be sure that your military oppressors were getting what they wanted, whether it was taxation from the people or uh, oppressing the people so that they didn't have uprisings and all the rest. The Sadducees were experts at compromising the interests of Israel in order to stay in favor with the Romans. Second thing the Sadducees were expert at was politically keeping the, their popularity with the people. Now, this was not easy. You're talking about some sophisticated political people. I mean, this is better than Reagan and Clinton put together. They were able to handle the Romans and the Jews at the same time. Now, why were they upset? Well, because now the Jewish side of the equation is really uh, in trouble. They are losing the favor of the people, and they're being taught some doctrines by these political leaders that are the exact opposite of what the Sadducees believe. So they're very jealous. It's all about politics and power. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? We, we had a case of this this past week. Uh, here in our own city government, some funds were given to an outstanding evangelical Christian organization to run for the sake of the poor. It's called Christ Community Health Clinic. And uh, it's fortunate, if you happen to be an evangelical Christian, you've got to be very grateful because they're picking on one of the best organizations that we've got here in town. So Christ Community Health Clinic gets this funding. Uh, Planned Parenthood is now out. And the fire and brimstone that's coming from that group is unbelievable. I mean, the ridiculous editorial on Sunday from Wendy Thomas just knocks your socks off. I mean, it's slander that, that one of the chief editors in the paper is making, telling us what Christ Community Health Clinic's going to do wrong in the future. That was the substance of that editorial. Why? Somebody's jealous. Somebody's power is being taken away. The people are following somebody else. You know why? Because Christ Community Health Clinic loves people. They're not just about a political agenda. They're not just trying to raise money. They're not just trying to increase their, their agenda. They're actually serving the poor, and they've been doing it for years. And the people love them. And those in power are very jealous. You see the same dynamic today, and that's just a picture of what happens in your workplace. And it ha it's happened in your life. If you've been a Christian long enough, you're going to get this. Now, instead of folding up your cards, 
saying, you know, I just, I just wasn't built for this conflict, you know. This is, somebody else is going to have to handle this. Look, gentlemen, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you're going to be my witnesses, first of all, in Jerusalem. And things get hot in Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses there. And you're going to be my witnesses to the end, I mean to the grisly death. And the power of the Spirit's going to enable you to do that. There's no backing out, buddy. This is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. If you don't intend to do this, then you just don't intend to follow Him at all. Because when you follow Him, you receive His Spirit who empowers you to be a witness who's always getting into trouble. And like they say, the, you know, it's, uh, Christians are like tea bags. We're only good when in hot water. And that's, that's when we're at our best. And that's when Peter's at his best. And you can watch him here and see. But the first thing you must realize is the gospel ministry enrages the self-sufficient. It makes them very jealous. What, notice what else it does in verses 19 through 39. It gets them really frustrated. What's going to be very frustrating for Wendy Thomas and everybody else criticizing these people is that Christ Community Health Clinic is probably going to do a great job. It's going to be very frustrating for them. Why is it frustrating for the Sadducees? Number one, because they're frustrated by God's miraculous power. I mean, you know what? When people are being saved and lives are being turned around, it's kind of hard to deny it. And that's what's happening in the city with real Christian people who are working with the poor and the lost. The lives are getting turned around. Most people, even unbelieving people, see the handwriting on the wall, so to speak. And they grant that good things are happening. That's the reason the city council gave the contract to Christ Health Community Health Center. They saw good things were happening. You can't deny it. God's power is at work in people's lives. And it's undeniable except to the idiot. And this is what's happening here. God's miraculous power. And what did God's miraculous power do? It not only healed people who wanted to be healed, saved people who wanted to be saved, but it delivered people who were delivering the message. And God's power will do this for you. Why don't you entrust yourself into His hands instead of your machinations and your ideas and your schemes? Why don't you simply say, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you take me. I'm going to trust you to break the chains. I'm going to trust you to open the prison doors. I'm going to trust you to release me from my captivity. I'm going to trust you to give me the affirmation that will counter the scorn that I'm going to receive from those around me. Why don't you trust Him to do that? And here's what you're going to find out. God's miraculous power takes up for His people, and it will always frustrate those who are scorning the one who sits on the holy hill, Jesus Christ Himself and His disciples. That's what frustrates people who continue to oppose the gospel and opposed gospel messengers. You're actually opposing God himself, and that puts you on the wrong side. So they're frustrated by God's miraculous power. What else are they frustrated by? These poor people got lots of frustrations. Verses 20 through 29, they're frustrated by the disciples' relentless testimony. Relentless testimony. That the more you persecute these people, the louder they get. The more you try to take them down, the stronger they are. The more you try to intimidate them, the bolder they become. Gentlemen, I'm telling you, through the ages of history, that's exactly what's happened. Just two weeks ago, I'm standing in the middle, uh, or on the, in the stands of the Roman Colosseum. And you can see down below where the lions were kept under the floor. Because the floor is gone, so you can see in the platform of the 
Colosseum. You can see down below where the lions were kept until they were brought out. And of course, games were played in the Colosseum. And some of the games were to let the lions have a little fun with criminals. And some of those criminals were Christians. And the reason they were criminals is because they were Christians. And I'm standing there in a, in a place where some of our brothers went to the death because they refused to give way. And I'm telling you what, what the Bible tells us is that they are victorious. The martyrs have special place in heaven right now. And one day they'll be crowned and we'll all recognize them. And the fact is, the word martyr just means witness. And Jesus says, when the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my martyr. Every one of us. That means we'll die to ourselves and to our popularity and to being in the in crowd. And we're going to be what God makes us to be. And we're going to receive our popularity and our acclaim and our esteem from Him. And we're going to seek to be gracious about it, but we're going to do it. And it's going to be relentless. And when, when it is, I'm telling you what, this is very frustrating for those who oppose you. They're saying, these people won't shut up. What's wrong with them? We can't, we can't contain them. And look what happens. Here's the reason. When the angel delivered them from prison, they immediately had their instructions. Okay, gentlemen, I'm going to open the prison for you. Now, what I want you to do is go down by Caesarea by the sea and just take a little vacation. Lord knows you need it. No, sirree. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. This life. The gospel brings life, and without it, it's death. Go and tell the people who are dying that there's life, and don't waste any time about it. So you're freed in order to free other people. That's the reason you're free. You're here to serve. You don't have another reason to be here. Why in the world would you want to be here when you can be there? Why would we not all commit suicide if we really believe the promises of heaven? The reason is we've got a job to do. That's the reason. That's the agenda. So you're freed in order to go free other people. Now look, first of all, in verses 21 through 22, it's in public. And the, the, the guards say, look, the men you put in prison, the ones you tried to intimidate, the ones that you tried to detain, look what they're doing. They're preaching. You can't hold them back. And when you do hold them in prison, we know from the Apostle Paul what they do. They preach in prison. They lead the Praetorian Guard to faith in Jesus Christ. And the Praetorian Guard, the, the Caesar's special guard, his elite troops get led to Christ because God in that case decided to leave Paul there to lead them to Christ. So he didn't let them out of that prison. Now he let Paul out of prison in Philippi. So he could go on and lead the Bereans and the Thessalonians and the Athenians to Christ. So he led him out of the Philippian prison. In the Roman prison, he kept him there for a while. Why? For an evangelistic purpose. So look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. You'd think they might cower by now. And just thank God for their deliverance. But God set them free that they might set others free. Uh, and then notice uh, in verse 22, uh, no, never mind. Let's skip on to uh, verse 27 through 29. In private, not only in public. Oh, yeah, I did want to say one other thing. In, if you'll look at verse 26, they, they couldn't take them by force because of the popularity. I mean, the Sadducees were right. They were popular now. If you try to take them by force, take away our apostles, 
our, our people who care for us finally, someone who wants us to get a good education, someone who wants us to have a job, someone who wants to deal with our physical maladies, someone who wants us to have housing, someone who wants us to put our families together, you're going to take them away from us? We'll stone you. Better be careful when you're dealing with someone who's really in the gospel ministry because people are attracted to the gospel and, and they appreciate the people. The poor people appreciate the gospel. The lost people appreciate the gospel. You better be careful how you deal with those people. So that's in public. Then in private, verses 27 through 29, notice that here now they're brought in before the Sanhedrin and we're going to see how they deal with their testimony in private. We've already seen in public, it's no holes barred, straight ahead, nobody's slowing me down. What about in private? Now they're going to be intimidated by the Sanhedrin. Remember the Sanhedrin is a combination of city council or you might even call it the Senate, U.S. Senate plus the Supreme Court. I mean, these are high-level, well-educated, powerful people. The most powerful people in all of Israel. And Peter is being brought before them. And Peter has never been to college. When they, brought, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them. We strictly told you not to do this. And look what you've done. And look how they put it. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, verse 28. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Do you see how angry they are? You're taking away our popularity in Jerusalem. You're undermining our political leadership. You're undermining our network of control that we've had in this city forever. And you're turning the cart upside down. And not only that, you're making us responsible for the blood of that dead Jew. They were angry because the gospel preaching makes you guilty. Now, you were already guilty, but the gospel preaching candidly, honestly, for the first time in your life, tells you what your real problem is. And the Sanhedrin didn't want to be told what their problem was. Their problem was they were responsible for the blood of Jesus in two ways. Number one, they handed him over to the Romans. They're the ones who shouted, crucify him, crucify him. But not only that, every one of them, by their personal sin, had caused the death of Jesus Christ. Because for Jesus to offer salvation to anybody, there has to be a provision for their sin. And He provided it on the cross. And so there's a real sense in which every sinner is responsible for the blood of Christ. The powerful don't want to be told that, that they're guilty for anything. Powerful people are often very insecure people. And that's the reason they're powerful. Their grab for power is a compensation for fear of exposure and vulnerability. So they grab for power. And the last thing they want to be told is that they're exposed or that they are vulnerable to ex external powers. They've spent their whole lives building a power structure to guard themselves. And now they're being challenged by this same gospel. And it's the same thing you get today. The scorn that comes upon the gospel is, number one, you're saying Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. Oh, really? So you think, out of all the smart religious people in the world, you've got the answer, and everybody who disagrees with you is wrong. How arrogant of you. So that's the first thing that's wrong with the gospel. Second thing that's wrong with the gospel is, so you want to tell me I'm fundamentally bad? I mean, isn't your message kind of depressing? Who would want to come to your church and listen to the message about being a sinner? You know, I believe in the goodness of all people. 
I believe in, in the goodness of all people, regardless of their religious background, contrary to what you think. You see how the scorn comes on the gospel because the gospel is attacking something very precious to the person, namely their own pride. And the Sadducees at least were honest enough to say, you're filling Jerusalem with this message. And you're calling us guilty, and we're sick and tired of it, and we told you not to do it, and you're going to get yourselves in real trouble. Okay? Now, Peter has been duly warned. Now, we all know Peter, don't we? Peter was the one who, when a maiden who has no power said to him, aren't you the one who accompanied him? Oh, I never knew him. And she says, You've got a Nazarene accent. I, I think you're one. Damn you, woman. I don't, never knew him. He took a curse and said, I never knew him. That's Peter. Courageous, bold Peter. Now Peter is being intimidated, not by a little maiden. He's being told by the Supreme Court, you're in disobedience. We've warned you once. You know our reputation. We know how to deal with people like you. Okay, next verse. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Gentlemen, would you just underline that verse? Would you memorize it? Would you put it in your heart? Would you say to God today, Lord, would you, would you help me to believe this and to do it with all my heart? To obey you rather than men. Now, we're told in the Bible very clearly that we're to submit to all governing authorities because they're all instituted by God. That involves the authority in your family. You're the father, and there should be submission to the father in the household. It involves the church. If you have elders, there should be submission to the government and discipline of your church. Or if you have some other form of government, there should be discipline and submission to order in the church. It involves the state. So that whether the president happens to be from your favorite political party or not, you show him high respect and esteem. You do not slander him. You can disagree with his opinions, but some of the things that I hear Christian men saying about our president are completely disgraceful. Because we are the ones above all who show respect and give it where it's due. We pay our taxes and we give honor to people in the office. We can disagree with them and vote against them if we like. But in the Bush administrations and the Obama administration, I have heard some of the most outlandish things that, that one can imagine from Christian people. It needs to stop. So we have from the Scriptures heavy orders to be men who know how to recognize authority and to grant that authority respect and to obey the directions from authority. No question about it. However, 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 there's one big authority in life, and his name is G-O-D. And he does set up authorities. But sometimes those authorities disobey the one who set them up. As in the case of Daniel, when he was told that he must not pray to his God, he could only pray to the God of the Babylonians, who happened to be the emperor himself. And immediately Daniel goes to his room, opens the windows, and prays. He immediately disobeys the civil authorities. Why? Because the civil authorities put themselves in conflict with the ultimate authority himself. And there's to be no question about what you do. And when you do it, you like Daniel, you submit yourself to the lion's den. And Daniel had confidence in the Lord. 
But Daniel didn't know the future unless God revealed it. And so Daniel didn't know whether he was going to be eaten or not. But he's ready to go to the lion's den rather than to disobey his God. And he shows still continuing respect for Darius the king. It's amazing how Daniel still respects him. Even though he's being put in the lion's den because of Darius the, the king. And of course Daniel's delivered. And God is perfectly able to do that. If he chooses to do it, wonderful. If he doesn't, wonderful. You know what happens to you. Glory. So look here what Peter does. He says, I want to make one thing perfectly clear. We're here to obey the Lord rather than men. When men disagree with the Lord, men will not be obeyed. So of course, then, Christians who are under heavy orders to obey all authorities that are instituted by God, we have an ultimate authority who trumps disobedience to Him at any moment. Then look exactly what Peter does. He goes to the very thing that the Sadducees were complaining about with respect to the gospel. The first thing the Sadducees wanted these disciples to do was to shut up. But if you're not going to shut up about Jesus, at least shut up about making us guilty for his sin, for his death. At least shut up about the part about the blood. At least shut up concerning the part about guilt. Look what Peter does in his gospel here. It's the same old gospel, brothers. And it doesn't change whether you're intimidated or you're not intimidated. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. And here we go again, Peter, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And here's why we'll keep talking about it. We're witnesses of these things. And so is God himself, the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So God has given His Spirit who who witnessed everything you did and everything Christ did. And that Spirit lives in us and has made us bold witnesses of what He witnessed and what we've witnessed with our own eyes. And we'll obey God rather than men. So you want to pour scorn on the gospel? Well, here, here goes some more. Notice what the intimidation does to Peter's gospel. It does not airbrush it. It does not remove the offensive portions. Notice what the intimidation to the gospel does. It makes the the offensive portions clearer than ever before. Because you obviously need to hear it more than ever before. This is the part you're having trouble with. It's your pride. Okay, let's hit it again. That's exactly what Peter does. Gentlemen, this is the challenge of the day. What I hear some of our churches in Memphis preaching is what will find acceptance among the average person on the street who happens to tump into their church on a Sunday morning. And the last thing the preacher wants to do is to offend anybody. This is the way, the modern way of doing gospel ministry. Well, let's just come alongside. Let's make church very entertaining. Let's use all the methods of entertainment that they want to use. And let's be sure that the message doesn't offend them. Gentlemen, if you've got a message that doesn't offend the human flesh, you don't have the gospel message. It's that clear. Look what Peter does. And this is a problem for those who want to oppose the gospel. Because the more you oppose a real Christian man, the clearer he's going to get. And Peter's message was not airbrushed. It was refined and sharper 
and more powerful than ever before. And you know, most of us don't get an opportunity like this to put our lives on the line and to talk to the most hardened group against the gospel. Most of us will never get this kind of opportunity. You'll get a more secret opportunity with one person. And there it is, gentlemen. That's your Sanhedrin right there. Don't waste your opportunity. Peter went from opportunity to opportunity. And, you know, he feared that he wouldn't stand up to this. You remember in John chapter 21? He was, he was fishing, and Jesus appears to him. And Peter, Peter, when he heard the voice, he jumped in. He couldn't believe Jesus had come back for him. He jumps in the water after he put his coat on. Makes no sense. Jumps in, goes to Jesus. And Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Peter said, you know all things. You know I love you. He said, well, feed my sheep. And then Jesus reassures him and says, Peter, you're going to go where you don't want to go. You're going to be led where you don't want to be led. And basically, he predicts Peter's martyrdom. And the glory of that is, what Peter was being guaranteed by Jesus was he was not going to do what he did before, deny Jesus three times. He wasn't going to do it. And here you see it. Jesus is sustaining this man. And so you look to Jesus Christ in his spirit. You say, Lord, sustain me. Not to be an angry man, not to be unnecessarily offensive, because you'll also notice, notice with Peter, particularly with Paul, you'll notice exquisite court manners. They're always respectful, just like Daniel, always respectful. Joseph, always respectful to the Pharaoh. So we're respectful. We don't give any cause for offense unnecessarily, but our message is crystal clear. So in public and in private, the Sanhedrin are frustrated by the disciples' relentless testimony. Thirdly, they're frustrated, verse 30 through 32, by the gospel itself. The gospel is attacking their pride, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him. We are witnesses of this. This gospel ministry continues to a hardened world. Why? You were one day hardened too. Some of you may be hardened right now, and you have the privilege of hearing the gospel that God saves people who killed His Son. This is the wonder of the gospel, that yes, of course this message goes out. You killed Him by your own sins. God exalted Him. The one that you killed by your sin, He's ruling the universe. But let me tell you something about Him. He's put out a reprieve. There's amnesty for everybody. All you must do is come to Him and receive Him and Invite His Lordship into your life. And He gives free reprieve to everybody, no matter what you did against Him, even if you were on the Sanhedrin at the time. Amazing gospel message. And then notice they're frustrated, verse 33 through 39, by their own standards, because one of their own men, although a Pharisee, Gamaliel, makes a reasoned argument. And it goes like this. Now, gentlemen... You're criticizing the Christ Community Health Clinic. And yet you haven't examined their record to see what a great job they've been doing in this city. And you are saying they're going to fail before they have even opened for business. And people have been sending them customers before their time has even started, so they had no funding to deal with them. And then you criticize them for it. Don't you think it would be better, if they're not going to be successful, to give them every opportunity so that we couldn't, their critics couldn't be accused of having uh, destroyed them by unfair slander. Don't you think it would be better let them fail on their own merits and let the populace see it themselves? That's kind of the kind of argument that Gamaliel was giving. 
So even by their own Machiavellian standards, they're idiots. And anybody who even wants to advance their cause knows they're idiots. That's what Gamaliel's saying. You're a bunch of idiots. Look, if you want to destroy somebody, this is not the way to do it. So I don't hold up Gamaliel as some wonderful Christian spokesman. Now, God used him uh, with a pra- very pragmatic argument that does make sense. You thank God for people like this. I mean, I, I, I would wish that there were more of those in Memphis who at least could think straight. You know, if you're going to try to accomplish defeating the Christian message, at least do it fairly, you know? I, that, I'd, I'd appreciate opponents like that. So Gamaliel is making a pragmatic argument that appealed to pragmatic political people. And they said, well, you know, the gentleman's correct. And he persuaded them. So they're frustrated across the board. When you oppose the truth of Jesus Christ, he is God's son. He did die on a cross for sinners. He was raised on the third day. He did ascend to heaven. He happens to be sitting at the right hand. He's ruling the entire universe. And he's going to come back and judge. Now, if you put yourself at odds with that message, you're just going to be frustrated. Because you're going to be frustrated with life itself. Because this is life. And you've got yourself in, uh, out of accord with the entire theme of the whole universe. So, of course, you're going to be frustrated from every angle. And that's what the Sadducees had. The gospel ministry enrages the self-sufficient because they're jealous, but they get very frustrated. Now, lastly, we got two minutes. The gospel ministry exalts the faithful. How? First of all, we are counted worthy to suffer for him. Gentlemen, if you just check out the texts in 1 Peter, Peter himself, later on, when he's writing the Christians, he says, look, it's not a good thing to suffer punishment for doing evil. But if you suffer punishment... For doing good. That's a glory. (laughs) Because that's exactly what they did to Jesus Christ. This is Peter making the argument. He's experienced it. He's experienced it. And Paul himself says, we fill up in our flesh what is lacking. That is what is yet to be accomplished by Christ himself. So the sufferings that came to Christ, you're identifying with those sufferings when you suffer for his name. And that's the reason that people have this exquisite joy while their backs are being whipped with three cords of leather 39 times. This is the reason for the exquisite joy because they're identifying with the one they love the most. They're experiencing Him. And Jesus says, Blessed are you when people persecute you for my name's sake. For so the prophets before you were persecuted. So first of all, we are exalted because we are counted worthy to suffer. And secondly... We're counted worthy to serve for Him. What does He do? He gives you the joy of identifying with Him, and then He powerfully sends you right back to the streets to do the work, to preach, to teach, to heal, to cast out evil and demons. He puts you right back to work, and you're in His business. It's more important than any business you could ever belong to. His business. So you have the honor of identifying with Him in His sufferings. You have the honor of identifying with him in his ministry to people who desperately need it. It's amazing. The power of the gospel, the power of the Spirit, when he gets a hold of a man and puts him in a world that needs to hear. It's amazing what can happen with one man full of the Spirit. Lord, help us today to be that man. Help us to go out wherever we are and in deeds of love and mercy and with words of kindness and respect, but with a firm grip 
upon the gospel, because you have a firm grip upon our hearts, may we be men who live clearly and speak clearly today, no matter what goes on around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.